Thank you. It's such a joy to be back with you again and to fellowship and to worship with you. Where would we be without the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ? We have all transgressed his laws. We have spurned his grace. We have trampled upon his word. And were God to mark iniquity and sin in any of us, none would be able to stand. But we rejoice today that there was one who came and lived perfectly the law of God. Mary never had to say to him, Jesus, get in there and clean your room. Young people, are you listening? Jesus, get in there and brush your teeth. She never had to say anything to him like that, nor did Joseph. He kept the law of God punctiliously, perfectly obeying it, and goes to the cross. And there, as our substitute, pays the price for our sin, so that we who believe upon him might have his perfect righteousness imputed to us, and our sins removed through the sacrifice of his blood and atonement. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his perfect obedience, his active and his passive obedience, no hope without it. Just want you to know, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. And as you're turning, I want to just say what a joy it is to be with you. Debbie and Caleb and I love you. We pray for you. We've had some sickness this week. And so thought it best maybe in the long run, just let me come. And then y'all can see them later if you have me back again. But I want you to know we pray for you. We pray for this church on a regular and weekly basis. And every Lord's Day morning, and I've done this for years, but on a regular basis, every Lord's Day morning, there are several churches that I pray for and pray especially for the presence and the power of the risen Christ to be upon you. And you are one of them. We care for you and pray for the Lord's blessing and growth upon you. And thank you for remembering me, and I want to thank the elders for inviting me to entrust me with the greatest responsibility of handling and ministering the Word of God to you. And so good to see so many of your faces again, and I remember with fondness our fellowship together. Luke chapter 23, I want to begin reading with verse 32 and go down through verse 43 and speak to you this morning upon Christ's greatest trophy. I want this to be an encouragement to you and help for you in not only the week to come, but in many weeks to come as well. On Christ's greatest trophy, Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Hear now the word of the living God. Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they were crucif- there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, 
He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were who was who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying to Jesus, And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And thus far, the reading of God's word. And may he give us ears to hear and minds to comprehend, hearts to receive, and wills to obey. Great God, our immeasurable Father, the Father who is in heaven, we approach you today, not in our own worth or merit, but in the merit of him who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, ascended for us, and even now is at your right hand interceding for us. And Father, with anticipation, we wait for him to come back for us. Lord of the scriptures, the one who gave your word, I pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit to make it effectual in each mind and heart. Cause us not just to hear, but really to listen and hear your voice speaking to us through your word, to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, to the building up of your people, and for those who are still outside of Christ, who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. May this day be the day that salvation comes to their hearts and homes. And we will praise you as we ask all these things. In the worthy name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. There have been many trophies of grace in Christ's ministry. I could just spend two or three hours or two or three sermons just dealing with how time after time after time this prophet from Nazareth would touch people and lay his hand upon people And they would suddenly turn from darkness to light and there would be trophies of his marvelous grace. His ministry is filled with that. The title of my sermon today, I borrowed from C.H. Spurgeon. It's the only thing I borrowed from him. I've tried to preach his sermon one time, one of his sermons one time, and it just didn't, it didn't go over too well. But I did borrow the title of this, his sermon from this passage in which he entitled it, Christ's Greatest Trophy. And what we have here in this passage that I read for you this morning, we have the first of the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, where he is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But we also have the second of the seven times that Jesus spoke from the cross, and he addresses a repenting sinner. And and what we see here is dying men at prayer. 
And unless someone is reprobate, all dying men and women pray, especially as they draw near to the world unseen and the present world begins to fade into twilight. People pray. As the old saying, I, my father had some friends that fought in World War II, and they said, they were, there was a saying among them, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. And when you are drawing near, I don't care who you are, people begin to pray in some form or another. And what we find here in this passage that I've read to you this morning is dying men at prayer. And as with all the other sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ, this one is like a window. And what I would like to do is open it up and look at it for us this morning. The first thing I want us to see from this passage is the setting of this saying. Now, the Luke account is not quite in harmony with Matthew and Mark. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. The gospel of John is a different genre of gospel with a different purpose. The synoptic writers tell us a little, they fill in the gaps that the others leave out. It's not that they're not inspired, it's just that they're looking at things from a different perspective, because all are equally inspired. The other gospel narratives give us insight into what takes place, which Luke just doesn't quite fill in. He, of course, was not there. He gathers all the information from those who were eyewitnesses, he tells us in chapter 1, and he writes those things most surely believed among us. And what Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, 43 through 44, and Mark tells us in chapter 15, verses 27 and 32, is not only were there two criminals crucified with the Lord Jesus, one on the right and one on the left, Luke only gives us the account that one of them was reviling him. One of them was, as it is said here, is hurling abuse at him. The other gospel narratives tell us that both men started out reviling Christ. These two others crucified were both hurling abuse at him. What crimes had they committed besides robbery, probably murder? Rest we're not told. But both of them are hurling abuse. They are reviling upon the Lord Jesus. And the actions that are given to us in Matthew and Mark are told in the imperfect tense, which means they just didn't say it one time. They kept saying it over and over and over. Notice the words here. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, if you are, come down and save yourself and us. They just didn't say it one time each. They kept on saying it. If you are the Son of God, they're dying. They're desperate. They're hopeless. They need deliverance. They need rescuing. And they're crying this out over and over and over again. How long? We're not told. So this is the setting. Both men are hurling abuse at Christ. If you are the Christ, 
come down, save yourself and us. Not only are they saying it, the soldiers, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, especially the Sanhedrin we know, are saying this. The second thing I want us to see, and I want to focus in this morning upon verse 43, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, what precipitated the change, and that's the second thing I want us to see, is the great change which precipitated this saying. Suddenly, one of them, which one, whether it's on the right or on the left, we are not told. But suddenly, something happens to one of them. One of them changes his mind. And he quits hurling abuse at the Lord Jesus. And he begins to rebuke his other criminal that was on the other side of the Lord Jesus. What caused this sudden change? Why did he go from reviling and hurling abuse at the Lord Jesus on one hand to now crying out and praying to it? Well, we're not really told. Could it be Christ's actions before and while on the cross? We see in the gospel narratives as they arrest the Lord Jesus and they bring him to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They see something different about him. He is not acting like these other men. He is not resisting. He's not struggling and putting up a fight. They see a calmness about him. For this hour, he had said, I am calm. He knew that before the foundation of the world, he, along with the God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, said in holy counsel, this was all planned and predetermined. All of his steps were marked out before the foundation of the world. Even as he is born in Bethlehem, the shadow of the cross loomed over his cradle. This was the hour to which he'd come. Maybe they had observed his actions. We're not told. Could it have been that they heard the Lord praying? Notice how he prays. You know, I've said so many times, I maybe even said it here. There's certain things in the scriptures I just do not like. I'm just being honest with you. If I was writing the holy word of God, there'd be a few things that I would leave out. But you know, when God, by his spirit, moved upon holy men of old and carried them along so that they gave to us and wrote down the very inspired and errant word of God. God didn't come down from heaven and say, hey, Earl, I'd like to put this in the Bible. He didn't come to you and ask the same. He put some things in there that I don't necessarily like. And one of them is Jesus said in Matthew, pray for your enemies. Do good to them that despitefully use you. I don't want to pray for my. It doesn't matter what I feel like doing. It matters what Jesus comes. And I have to humble myself and bow my head and my heart and get on my knees and pray for my enemies. Pray for those that hate me. 
that slander me, that malign me. Well, here Christ is practicing what he preached. He is there on the cross, innocent, not guilty. These wicked religious leaders and the Roman soldiers and Pilate and Herod all guilty. And what are the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth as he's hanging there on the cross? God condemned these sorry, good-for-nothing, low-down rascals. No. The first words that come out of his mouth are give them. What a model. What a pattern for us. Or could it be that this criminal noticed? He is not praying wrath and condemnation upon his enemies. Instead, he's praying for grace and forgiveness. We're not told. Could it be the inscription that is put over the head of Jesus in both the Hebrew and the Greek and the Latin? Notice what it says. This is the king of the Jews. Could it be that he sees this proclamation and even this being the word of God, though written by men on a board across his head, it is still the word of God. He is the king of the Jews. Maybe. This is the thing that caused him to begin to think. This could have been the very thing that brought a change of mind. We're not told directly. However, something caused a sudden and abrupt change in the mind and in the words. The old King James uses the word malefactor, which means a criminal. Something brought a change. And there was a great change. Thirdly, let's go back and review these two thieves again before this saying takes place in verse 44. Today shall you be with me in paradise. Let's look at these two thieves if we can. The first one kept saying the same thing over and over and over again. Notice it's in the imperfect uh, tense. He was filled with unbelief. If you are the cry. He was more concerned with physical survival than his soul for eternity. We dealt with some of that in Sunday school this morning. You know, we want to be healthy. We want to be rich. We want to be prosperous. We want to be happy all the time. And I found in my own personal life, some of the tenderest mercies of Christ are often found in the darkest and hardest of trials. He was more concerned with his physical survival, his physical happiness and well-being than his own soul for eternity. He was more interested in avoiding suffering than having a savior and having his sins forgiven. And how true that is with so many of us today. We will do everything to keep our comfort zones safe. I was just reminded that I'm developing a new sermon. Strangely enough, I've never preached through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I preached through 22 of the New Testament books. But I was just reading the other day, and I'm 2nd Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul talks about himself receiving great blessings from the Lord. He was caught up into the third heaven. And as a result of that, to keep him from boasting, the Lord gave him a what? 
And three times, three times, Paul invokes the Lord to deliver him from this thorn of the flesh. And three times the Lord says, no. Instead, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. I am not going to remove the trial. I am not going to remove the thorn. But what I will do with my almighty hand and sovereign power, I will give you grace to go through this. So here, this man is more interested in avoiding suffering than having a savior. And sometimes the Lord takes us through times of suffering, times of trial. Those who tell you that once you come to Jesus, you're going to have a bed of roses are liars, deceivers, and false prophets. I never had such struggles with the adversary and with the flesh and the world until the Lord opened my heart and my eyes and brought me to a savior. And then I realized I wasn't on a playground. I was on a battlefield. And so many times we want deliverance. And yet God, as we learn from the book of Job, God uses these hard things to reveal himself more clearly to our hearts and to our thinking. He was more interested in avoiding suffering than a savior. He was more desirous of having the benefits that Christ could give than having Christ himself. Many want the benefits, but they don't want Christ to be their Lord. He basically parroted Satan's statement in Matthew 4 as after his baptism, the Spirit of God. It's interesting. Luke uses the word led, but it's actually the word to drive or to throw out into the wilderness, where for 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted to the devil. And at the end of that period of time, Satan came to him with three great temptations. And the first temptation begins with, if, if, if you are the son of God, command this stone and turn it into bread. And here, these thieves are parroting the very words of Satan, if. This unrepentant thief showed no remorse or sorrow for his sins, only distress that he was suffering the consequences of his sins. In other words, he was groveling in self-pity. In all of this, he was tempting the Savior. Now let's turn from this unrepentant thief to this repentant thief. Or in the words of the great hymn by William Cooper, there's a fountain filled with blood. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. Let's look at this dying thief, this second thief, this repentant thief. He started out reviling the Lord Jesus. He started out hurling abuse at him. But then there was this sovereign change, this sudden change. And look what happens with verse 40. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same condemnation, same sentence of condemnation? Several things pop out here. It shows, first of all, that suddenly he had a true. Do you not even fear God since we're under the same condemnation? 
I find it interesting, my friends, my dear sisters and brothers, that as Paul ends his section, this pericope in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, where he is dealing with the condemnation of the whole world, the whole world is under sin. How does he end that? He ends it with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I grew up just right over the way here, some of you know, in the Thurman Trap Hill area. And I can remember as a little boy, like some of these young people sitting here, I would hear the old folks talk about people and they would say, that woman really fears the Lord. That man is a godly man. That wasn't a slam. That was a commendation. To be known as a God-fearer. Someone said, do you fear God? I said, absolutely. I, I don't fear the one that can kill my body. I fear the one that can kill both body and soul. And Notice how he, this repentant thief, addresses his co-conspirator. He shows that he had a fear of God. Do you not even fear God? Secondly, notice he rebukes his companion in crime. Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, what has made this man turn from reviling to now dealing with his own heart and his own sin? He declares that he justly deserves his condemnation. Notice in verse 41. And we indeed are suffering justly. Where is the person? Where is the person, as Spurgeon said, that will take sides with God against himself? We all want to justify our actions. We all want to commend what we have said and done. But who will take God's side against ourselves? That's what this man was doing. As he says, and we indeed are suffering justly, not unjustly, not unrighteously. He gave a full acknowledgement of his own sin. But we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He testified against himself without any excuses. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard people say, I always have bad luck. Why do bad things always happen to me? No one knows how bad I really have it. While everybody else gets all the breaks. You ever heard these people, these things, people say these things? They're out there. This man had none of this. We deserve this sentence of condemnation. We are justly suffering for our deeds, our transgressions of God's holy law. Notice also he continues, he confesses the innocence of Christ in verse 41. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. I hope you're getting this change that has taken place with him. 
And what I want you to see also in verse 42, and he was saying, Jesus, I think that the Byzantine text of family of texts of the Greek text really gets fully what's being said here. In our, most of our English versions, I'm using the New American Standard, the ESV, they omit a word that the Byzantine family of text has. And it's this one word, Lord. And it said, and he says in verse 42, and he was saying, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Christ was in the moment of his greatest weakness. He was condemned. He was bloodied. He was broken. There was no way of escape, humanly speaking, for him. And notice the request of this man. I mean, would you pray to someone that's on the cross? He has a crown of thorns pierced into his brow. We're not talking about little briars here, like little blackberry briars out here. We're talking about thick thorns that grow in the Palestinian desert, pierced into his skull, blood dripping down his face, his beard. His hands are pierced, not through the palms, but here at the wrist. His feet, one on top of the other, are pierced through and bleeding, bleeding, bloody, broken, condemned. And he prays to him, Jesus, Lord. What you see here, my dear sisters and brothers, is something very wonderful. He was humbled as evidenced by his non-grandiose request. What did he say? He quit saying, deliver us, save yourself and us. And he now just utters two little words. Remember me. Remember me. I want to observe at this point a few things before we go to our fourth major point here. Both men are dying. Both men are praying. If you're the Christ, come down, save yourself and save us. That's a prayer. It's in the form of an imprecatory prayer. If you are the Christ, come down and save us. Both men are dying. Both men are praying. Both men are praying to Jesus. And both men are praying for salvation. However, only one was answered. Don't think, my friends, the deathbed prayers of everyone is heard. We folks up here in the mountains have this idea. Somebody can live like hell, live like the devil all of their lives. But on their dying bed, a preacher comes, leads them through the little sinner's prayer, and they pray, and everything's all right. They've gone to a better place. I'm working on a sermon entitled Lies Preachers Tell at Funerals. 
Oh, he was a good, she was a good one. She's gone to a better place. He's gone to a better one. Both men are dying. Both men are praying. Both men are praying to Jesus. Both men are praying for salvation, but only one is answered. Now, what was it? Well, let's look fourthly at Christ's response to this man. In verse 43, and he said unto him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. I'm not trying to be critical or censorious here, but what takes place is so wonderful that our English translations do not capture it. Neither the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, the NIV, none of them capture it. What did Jesus say to him? Here in verse 43, it says from the New American Standard, truly, the old King James uses the word truly. The ESV says, I think, certainly or surely. The New King James basically the same. None of them translate the actual word. You know what the actual word is from the language of the New Testament? It's the word amen. Jesus is answering his prayer. If I were to translate this verse, verse 43, as it is given in the language of the New Testament, it would read like this. Amen to you, I say. This day with me, you shall be in paradise. Wow. Amen. It's as if metaphorically speaking, he's pointing to this repentant thief. Amen to you, I say. This day, not today, this day, very specific. This day, with me shall you be in paradise. It is important to note that Christ, again, answered one and did not answer the other. Now, what does Christ's response teach us? Notice the repentant thief only said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Nothing grandiose, nothing flamboyant, just a humble, unpretentious request, remember me. I don't want to be up there sitting at your left hand or right hand like the apostles argued. I don't want to be up there close to the throne, your throne. I just want to be remembered. Even if I'm the last in line, remember me when you come into your... Several things. First of all, Christ gave this repenting thief more than what he anticipated. He said, when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, this day, more than what he anticipated. Secondly, he gave the repentant thief more than what he expected. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, this day. You shall be with me. 
You know, that's, that's what makes heaven heaven for the Christian is it's not the gates of pearl. It's not the walls of jasper. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the mansion. The thing that makes heaven heaven for us who have been savingly brought to faith, repentance and faith in Christ is Christ himself today. Not when I come into my kingdom today. Not just you're going to be in my kingdom. You're going to be with me. And thirdly, he gave the repentant thief more than he requested. All the repentant thief asked was just remember me. Remember me, Lord. He said, no, my friend, not only am I going to remember you, you're going to be with me. How wonderful. What a glorious, sure redeemer of God's elect we have. Now, Three questions that need to be asked regarding all of this. Why was one thief saved and the other not? Well, both were crucified together for the same heinous crimes. Both were equally guilty. Both were equally near to Christ. Both equally heard and saw the same things. Why was one saved and the other wasn't? Was it because this one had a sharper intellect? Was it because he had more academic degrees? Was it that he exercised his free will? No. To any of these questions, I'll tell you why. It was free and sovereign grace. The sun which melts the cube of ice also hardens the clay, my friends. Sovereign election and irresistible grace were at work here. Grace, Isaac Watts puts it in the hymn. I quote this so often. Grace is a charming sound, harmonious to the ear. Heaven with its echo shall resound, and all the earth shall hear. Grace first inscribed my name in God's eternal book. It was grace that gave me to the Lamb who all my sorrows took. Grace taught my heart to pray and made mine eyes o'erflow. Tis grace that's kept me to this day and will not let me go. My friends, here is a wonderful picture of God's free and sovereign grace at work. I wanted to make a comment while our brother was teaching Sunday school this morning, but I thought I'd just keep it to myself. But now I'm going to say it. Don't tell me that God is not sovereign. When he sends a lion, it was alluded to by others, he sends a lion. The lion kills the prophet, doesn't eat him, doesn't kill the donkey. Sitting there, standing there beside the donkey, who is another one of his praise, God has control of all of his creatures and over all of nature. Over all things. Well, why? It was God's grace. Amazing, abounding grace. Grace is given. One was saved to the praise of God's glorious grace. And one was left to himself to the praise of God's glorious justice. The second question What light from this 
window revealed to us is the way of salvation, cleansing of sin, justification, and peace with God. What does this verse tell us? Well, it catechizes us that it is not by morality. This man had no good works to offer to God. He couldn't say, Lord, I was baptized. I'm a member of such and such church. I've tithed. I've done all these things. I've lived a good life. He had not. He had no works whatsoever to present before God to plead his case. It instructs us that it is not by any type of ecclesiastical works. And don't get me wrong. I believe the visible church is central to all of God's redemptive purposes in Christ Jesus. Baptism is not just a secondary ordinance. The observance of the Lord's Supper is not just something that you can take or leave. Giving to the Lord's work and cause is commanded of God. Living holy and interacting, mingling with the body of Christ, having that koinonia, that shared life with one another, is not an option for those who have been brought to Christ. But this man had none of these things. He couldn't plead any of that. You know, in Matthew 7, Jesus tells us in verse 21, many will say to me in that day, what will they say? These are not just the reprobate, the crackheads, the prostitutes, the drug dealers. These are religious people. Lord, Lord, they even call and acknowledge Jesus, Lord. Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? Jesus doesn't deny that they did. All he says in response is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The most horrible, fearful words in all the Holy Scriptures. So this Event in the life of Christ catechizes us that it is not morality. It instructs us that it is not by ecclesiastical works of any sort. It declares that there is only one way of salvation, only one forgiveness of sins, one way of justification, and that's through faith alone. You see, faith causes us to see that which cannot be seen with the natural eye. Somewhere or another, as this repenting thief is there on the cross, he sees something in this one in the middle. Even though he is bloodied and broken and bruised and condemned under the same condemnation, he sees something different. And it was the grace of faith that opened his eyes of unbelief to see that even what we would say is tragedy was really triumph. For Christ. Let me ask you this morning before I even get to the application. Do you see a beauty in Christ? A splendor in his majesty and glory that the world doesn't see? May God give us eyes to, to behold it. It also warns us of a delayed repentance. And I, I pray for our young people. Most of your names I can remember. 
some of you that are new here, I don't know you, so I, but I pray for you. And I think of myself when I was a, a teenager driving through these mountains and I was with a girlfriend. And I remember saying to her, you know, one day I'm going to sow all my wild oats right now. I'm going to get all these things that I want to do out of my heart and life. And then one day when I get married, have children, I'm going to straighten up my life and I'm going to get right and I'm going to go to church. What folly and, and presumption that was. Thank God. Thank the blessed triune God that the Father sent the Son and the Son sent the Spirit and the Spirit of God arrested me six months after I graduated from high school. I was under six months of deep, deep conviction of sin. He drew me so that I might sweetly follow. Open my heart that I might believe. You see... There is a danger to deathbed repentance. In all of the scriptures, there is only one example of deathbed repentance. And it's found right here. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, made this observation. Only one example of deathbed repentance so that none may despair. And only one so that none may presume. Mm -hmm. Young people, let me speak to you today. If you've not come in true repentance and true faith to Christ, don't bank on tomorrow. Go home this afternoon and get in your bedroom and open your Bible and start crying out to Christ and asking him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, to change your heart, change your mind, change your life, and save you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Many are putting it off. I'll wait till later. I'll wait till later. Like, you remember Paul? is before Agrippa. And he said, almost you persuade me to become a Christian. I'll put it off. Think about it. Agrippa's in hell today because of delayed repentance. Well, man, thank you for giving me a little extra time. I want to close with some applications to us here. Much could be said, but I want to hasten on. First of all, the first application, the unrepentant thief is indicative of unregenerate mankind today. They're more concerned about self and their well-being than they are their sins being forgiven and having a savior. Secondly, here is a wonderful picture of grace, the unmerited favor of God. Salvation has to be by grace. Or I can tell you, every one of us are dead meat. And as Spurgeon said, Christ had to love me before I was born, for he surely would have never loved me after I was born. <laughs> right? Saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for all his own. And Jesus died for me. Bless his holy name.
Thirdly, sometimes the greatest tokens and trophies of our Lord's grace are found in the most unusual places. Who would have thought that one of these criminals would be converted, would be saved upon his cross? We should never give up hope. We should pray and trust. And as long as there's breath in the body, there's still mercy that can be received. So, look for God's grace to be working in the most unusual places. I could give you some wonderful examples from church history, but I've got to hurry on. Your stomach's just starting to growl. Fourthly, not all dying people will have their prayers answered. Don't just think because somebody on their deathbed utters a little prayer that they're necessarily saying, I want to believe the best. I have family members. If you've never sat at the bedside of someone and watched them die, my friends, it is a shocking reality. Death is ugly. I've been at the bedside of people and watched them (gasps) take their last breath and see death come over them. Don't wait for that day. And don't think that everyone who prays a little prayer just before they close their eyes in death, that they will be necessarily saved. Some may be. But as Matthew Henry says, we cannot presume. My wife and I both have family members. Last few hours before they died, they said little prayers. We're hoping and praying that God is gracious and merciful to them and that one day we'll see them, but we don't have that assurance. Fifthly, to delay coming to Christ is not only dangerous, it's damning. And that's why I plead with you young people today or anyone here that's not in Christ. May it be like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus went up into a tree because he was a short, you know. Did y'all learn in Sunday school? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Have y'all learned that? You will learn that. And out of the whole crowd that's there, Jesus stops and he looks up at him. He knew his name personally. Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. For today, salvation is coming. Again, another picture, wonderful picture of God's infinite grace. Sixthly, to the humble and contrite heart, Christ always gives more than what was asked. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen, my son. Amen to you, I say. This day, you will be with me in paradise. He asked for a little. And he got much more than he anticipated, expected, and I might add, deserved.
What can we say except hallelujah? What a savior. And my final point of application is this. For the true Christian, death is not so bad. Y'all sing the song, it is not death to die. For the Christian, death is not so bad. It is, in, in the most simplest and unexplainable terms, it is to be with Christ in paradise. What more could you ask or desire? I heard a little funny story the other day. This guy died. He was very wealthy, had a lot, huge hash of gold. And before he died, he asked that a bunch of it, of his gold be chipped up and put in a little box and put in his casket and be buried with it. Now, this is an example. It's not biblical, okay? But he dies and he comes to the gates of heaven and he has that box of gold. And one of the angels says, why is he bringing that? Why is he bringing pavement up here to heaven? You see, the thing that's most prized on the earth is the thing that we'll walk on in glory. And we won't be looking at the ground, at the street of gold. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced nail, uh, blessed nail pierced hands. For the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. For the Christian, my friends, death is not so bad. It's to be with Christ in paradise. And may God encourage your heart and strengthen you today and cause you to feed upon this and treasure this in your heart. And may it produce fruit that will remain. Our great father, where would we be without your word? We would be groping in the darkness, trying to feel our way through life. But we thank you that you have given us your word, which is a sure word of prophecy. It's more real than if the Lord Jesus himself stood here beside us. It is the revelation of your divine self to us, of who you are and what you require of us to believe and to do. And so, our Father, for this word that we looked at this morning, so in such in so many ways, so surface level, I pray by your Holy Spirit to take your word and burn it deep within our souls and cause us to meditate upon it and cause it to bring fruit in our hearts and lives. And we will thank you as we ask all these things in the worthy name of Christ our Lord.